0: Hello and welcome to Jeanette's TV. I'm your host Jeanette Burke. We are live on location in Stratford, Ontario at the Costume and Props Warehouse here from the Stratford Festival. And I am going to introduce now Anne Swerfegger, who is the Director of PR. Welcome Anne to Jeanette's TV.
1: Hey Jeanette, nice to see you. You too. So we're
0: going to do this social distance, so we're going to do our best. I'm going to stretch my arm as as far as it can go. Absolutely. Now this, this uh, costume and props warehouse has been around for a while. It's very attached to the Stratford Festival. Um, obviously you provide the costumes for that and I'd love to hear a little story about how you maintain those costumes, how you decide what you're gonna produce in one year, I guess based on the plays that are coming out and so on and so
1: forth. Well, the uh, this is one of the largest costume and prop warehouses in the world. There are only two that are bigger, and they are for film and TV in Los Angeles. So we're the biggest for theater that there is. We rent costumes and props to theaters, to opera companies, to uh, schools, to film and television. So we have about 40 or 50,000 costumes and props in this warehouse. And every single year, the Stratford Festival puts on about 12 or 15 plays. And for most of those plays, they're building new costumes by the dozen uh, for each of those shows. Then those costumes, when the season's done, are added to the warehouse. Some of them are put, if they're really special, they're put into our archives uh, for posterity. So if it's something, say, Maggie Smith has worn or William Shatner or Christopher Plummer, those are special and they're kept. Sometimes we'll keep a whole show if we think it might go to Broadway or something like that. But generally, they're added to the stock here for other theater companies to rent from and also for us to use for certain productions in the future. Now, if we are going to use a costume in the future, we're going to remake that to, to exactly fit the style of that show and and fulfill the designer's dreams.
0: What type of budget do you look at when creating these costumes?
1: Well, a single period costume can cost upwards of $20,000 to create. This is, uh, these are incredible pieces. When the Stratford Festival took its production of King Lear starring Christopher Plummer to Lincoln Center in New York, I'm told that a telephone call came the day that the costumes arrived. And the person at Lincoln Center said, have you sent us museum pieces? They were that struck by the quality of the costumes, Mm -hmm. far surpassing anything that they had ever worked with before.
0: And just getting into some of the details about uh, the costumes themselves. So let's hear a little bit about the types of fabrics and some of the, um, the tools that you're working with.
1: Well, I think for that I'm going to need to pass over to Michelle Barnier, who uh, is one of our wardrobe heads, and she can introduce you to this, the uh, the fabrics we're using, the importance of fabrics when you're trying to create, uh, you know, something that's wearable for for actors uh, under hot lights, but also creating that period impression. Yes,
0: I'd like to hear all about that. So we will talk to Michelle.
1: Wonderful, thank
0: you. And my interview here at the costume and prop warehouse in Stratford continues with Michelle Barnier, who is basically head of costumes. And we're gonna talk now about these costumes, including this gorgeous one that was created by Deborah, what's her last name? Deborah. Hanson. Deborah Hansen from Schitt's Creek. So Uh, Michelle, please tell us how you would come about creating such a piece. And the materials that are being used.
2: Well, uh, as you can see from the sketch back here, this is something that Deborah, as the designer, would create. And then myself as head of wardrobe, we would sit down together and chat about... Uh, what would go into it? For example, you can see that there's multiple layers of fabric. There's different trims. There's uh, different types of fabric. Another element on this is that it's um, the fabric is also painted into to make it look seamlessly like two pieces of fabric are one. So that's a really important de- that was a really important detail to uh, to make happen as well. And uh, and then obviously you can see the concept of the black and white stripes is put over into the uh, hat as well, and every single item on the on the costume and on the hat is uh, is they're all chosen by the designer, and every single piece it it's like you can see this is three different types of trim all layered on top of one another, and that's something that uh, Deborah would go and choose all of those fabrics separately, play with them all, make sure that they fit together, make sure that they, they work properly together. Um, for example, this is a silk chiffon, so making sure that you have a silk-based net is important so that they have the same kind of drape. If you get into mixing synthetics and natural fabrics, sometimes that can pose an issue, sometimes it can create something great, just depends on what the look the designer wants.
0: Okay, so, couple questions. Before I pass the mic back, because we're being, uh, we're we're being social-distanced interviews yes. today. Okay, so how long would it take to create this type of a piece, and how would it be preserved or maintained in terms of like cleaning?
2: Yeah. And do you have a, a good cleaning story for us? Oh. <laughs> I'm sure maybe they're
0: shocked when you bring some of these
2: things. Yeah, well, this piece is exceptionally well-maintained uh, because it went directly from our show, A Little Night Music, into our I- archives. So it will be preserved properly until the end of time, which is fabulous. This is also a piece that would be um, dry-cleaned only. Um, part of the reason for that is the delicate nature of the fabric, um, the fact that it has paint on it. Uh, the dry cleaning would only happen um, at when it absolutely needed to along the way. Uh, a way that we clean fabrics that are traditionally not able to be laundered and things like that, is we actually spray straight vodka on them. Yeah, so because it, uh, it disinfects and it, takes, uh, it cleans it and takes smell away and can take stains away, things like that. So that's a, a sort of trick, trick of the trade there that, uh, that we like to do. So that's, um, that's something that we do with quite a lot of costumes that uh, are dry clean only to, to keep, it, uh, keep it going throughout.
0: And how long does it take to make something like this? Oh. From concept to completion.
2: Oh, concept to completion, uh, concept to completion, we're, we're months talking about it. But um, in terms of, like, once all of the fabric is compiled together and chosen, you're looking at, like, all of these dresses, you're looking at anywhere from 100 to uh, 150, 200 hours. Wow. Yeah. So we have phenomenal, phenomenal um, staff uh, with like our sewers and our craftspeople the skill set that that they have and that they've honed over the years and that they've been able to pass on generation to generation is the reason we are able to create these museum quality pieces Mm -hmm. so i imagine they rent for a fair amount of money yes yes uh, they rent via uh uh, the week okay so it's a it's a
0: weekly
2: uh, Uh, rental fee
0: okay so just before i wrap up i'd like to hear maybe a story from you of one of the, you know, the the most famous person you've dressed or some kind of story about what that experience was like?
2: Oh, goodness. Um, Well... We've had plenty of famous people uh, come through. I think one of the ones that I was, I guess, starstruck by was when uh, Christopher Plummer was here. He that was uh, that was very exciting for me. I was um, one of the wardrobe buyers at the time, so I was uh, out buying, you know, specific, really specific items that that were requested and things like that. So uh, I would say that's definitely someone that. Uh, that I really enjoyed being able to to collaborate with.
0: Okay, well, thanks so much. Now, please stay with us because we now will be hearing from the prop mistress. So we're here to talk about the props that are used in these wonderful Stratford plays at the Stratford Festival. And I'm bringing now to uh, sit with me and talk with me Donna Rapnick, who is head of props here at... um, the costume and prop warehouse for the Stratford Festival. Welcome, Donna. Thank you. Welcome.
3: I'm happy to show you around. We have such a a different array of things.
0: Well, we're happy to see it. So a couple of questions. How do you derive these props? Are they donated? Are they antique shops purchased? Um, Or I guess a combination, including making them yourself?
3: It's a little bit of everything. We get uh, quite a few donations, uh, we also have two buyers who are looking for props um, all the time, and we also build um, because furniture is heavy and it's not something we can always use on stage, so we have to make a lighter version of other piece.
0: Right, so how do you decide that? How do you decide what's going to be used on stage that it actually is already built and what you need to replicate?
3: Uh, we do a walk around with the designer to go through all the props, uh, and see what can be used. And we also need to find out, is it something an actor has to carry across the stage or bring onto stage if it's too heavy to do that? Are they going to jump on it? Are they going to knock it over? Are they going to take a sword to it? You never know.
0: Right. And I'm sure there's been incidences where a piece has either fallen over or something like that has happened during the course of uh, production on stage. Can you share any comments or stories to that effect? I think a lot
3: of it happens during the tech dresses. You know, we'll find out that we actually didn't paint the underside of a table as it goes flipping across. Or an actor picks up something. We had something in Blythe Superior where the actor picked up um, a glass and then was put it on
0: the table and was supposed to shake. And the table went to pieces. So... Okay, so if that's happening live, that's a problem, yeah, I guess you just got to roll with it. But if it's happening in rehearsal, obviously, you know, you can fix that problem. Um, now what do you do with these pieces when they're no longer useful?
3: Oh, in props, nothing is no longer useful. Uh, we keep it um, in storage. We've taken apart things that have, um, are not quite right, so we can use pieces. Um, for a props person, you
0: can always make something out of something else. So, I'd like to comment now about the value of a ticket. Because I don't think our audience or the viewing audience that comes to theater or a festival of this magnitude truly appreciates all the work that goes into it, right? So we're talking about props, we're talking about wardrobe, we're talking about all the little intricacies that... You know everyone needs to be paid, and of course the actors too, and this is all part of the ticket price. I want them to have an appreciation, and I would like for you to comment um, on your experience just being in the you know in the back end of the production in the in the props. Um,
3: I'm not sure. And how much goes
0: into it? How,
3: how much? A lot of work. We want to make sure that we're creating the atmosphere, whether it's 1930s diner or it's for front page in the 30s in an office building. So we want to create a world that you're a part of, as well as, as the actor. So we spend a lot of time making sure everything is historically correct. It's strong enough to last 110 performances. Think if you are picking up your glass every day for 110 performances, It you know, it takes a bit of abuse. So. We put a lot of effort to it, and I've got to say the first time we all come it all comes together is pretty amazing. And I think all
0: of us working in theater is that little jolt of energy. Now the festival is typically a summer type of festival. It usually runs uh, I guess from like late spring till around the end of November. And I would like to know how much work goes in all year round to prepare for. The productions for the festival
3: in a normal year we start looking at shows uh well i think Anthony and the creative um director's office starts looking at shows long before we even hear about them but we start to start looking uh usually in july june july august we start to budget we start to get designs and designers in so it's a year-round um Trying to get a show on, so if I'm start if there's a show in March that previews, we're probably looking at it in June of the previous year. Uh,
0: can you please tell me a little bit, Anne, about more about the Stratford Festival's history, how how it really built up the town?
1: Absolutely, the Stratford Festival was founded back in 1953, actually founded in 52, first season in 1953, and it was under a giant tent. The reason the festival was started was that our major employer was rail repair shops can't get much different from theatre and beautiful costume making than rail repair but that's what we were famous for. Those closed down when we moved from uh, steam to diesel and we needed something to revive the community. And This local journalist who was living in Toronto who had grown up here came up with the idea for a Shakespeare Festival because we had all kinds of links to Shakespeare. The town was called Stratford. The river was called the Avon. I went to Falstaff School. Other people went to King Lear School or Shakespeare School or Anne Hathaway or Romeo or Juliet. There were all these ties to Shakespeare. So it was a natural thing, but also a crazy thing to have a Shakespeare festival save an economy. It was the very first destination theater to open that I am aware of anywhere in the world. And it started with two plays for six weeks in 1953. Such a success. People came from all over the world. People came from all over the world to review the plays. The New York Times was here, the Times of London, the Guardian, everybody was here. Huge success, they had to extend it to eight weeks long, and the next year, they didn't just do two plays, they started adding and growing. Four years after uh, Four Seasons in the Tent, they built a permanent theater. And here we are today, we now have four theaters. We're about to open uh, a renewed version of the fourth theater, the Tom Patterson Theater, a $100 million project and uh unfortunately stymied a little bit by the pandemic right now yeah that but was that- my
0: next question how has COVID impacted I mean you can't even run you, you have no season this year That's right. and and how is the town surviving on tourism like I see still people coming here
1: yeah we um the Stratford Festival attracts about a half a million people every year and we are uh Really, a wonderful tourism town. Uh, we have incredible restaurants and shopping and B and B's and small inns and hotels. Everyone is dedicated to the tourist experience or the visitor experience here. It's a an incredible place. But no theater in 2020 around the world, and so we had to we had to cancel like other theaters everywhere did. Uh, now the theater, uh, the community outside the theater really pulled together. They did outdoor dining. They did um, small plays from, uh, by uh, other local uh, theater makers and did everything they could. But you're not bringing in 500,000 people like we would in a normal year. So it's a tough time for Stratford right now. But I had heard that you had a porch fest as well. We did. The, uh, the Perth, uh, here in Perth Museum, Stratford Perth Museum, I mean, had uh, beautiful plays from their porch. Uh, we had other players playing in a parkade at a hotel, uh, in backyards, in streets, in front of people's houses. Uh, you could commission them to come in uh, and do plays for your community, for your neighborhood. So there were really all kinds of things. But again, not bringing in 500,000 people, but bringing in people for sure. Right.
0: So like every other business pivoting, right? Absolutely. Thanks for being with us today on Jeanette's TV. I'm your host, Jeanette Burke. Please remember to like, comment, and share all our posts with your family and friends. You will find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Vimeo. You name it, we're there. Hashtag Jeanette's TV. And now we would also like to draw your attention to the fact that we have a Patreon account and no donation is too big or too small. But if you check below with the link and the donation levels, you will have a chance at possibly receiving a t-shirt with Jeanette's TV or Jeanette's TV inspirational logos from our TV and podcast from myself and from my guests. You can choose the color, you can choose the size, and you can choose what you want. And if not, you can check out some of the other donation levels, too. Again, this is Jeanette Burke, your host, signing off. And until next time, remember to be fabulous. I'm also asthmatic, so I get really claustrophobic. Okay, I'm feeling claustrophobic. No, get me out of here, sorry. I can't, I can't, sorry.